welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. Why Ground Control Parenting? Because we're not trying to be helicopter parents, but we do need to be on that tarmac, that ground control crew, making sure our kids have what they need for a successful takeoff. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. My daughter and two sons are in their 20s, and I've been writing about parenting and education issues for more than a decade. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. I am so excited that our guest today is my dear friend, Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell. Dr. Campbell is the 10th president of Spelman College, a historically black women's institution dedicated to academic excellence in the liberal arts and sciences. Before leading Spelman, she was a major force in the world of art and culture in her roles as dean of the Tisch School of the Arts, New York City Commissioner of the Department of Cultural Affairs, and the Executive Director of the Studio Museum in Harlem. She's a native Philadelphian, and she and her husband, Dr. George Campbell Jr., are the parents of son Gabby Kai, who is 50, Sekou, who's 44, and Britt, who will be 30 this year. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Mary. I'm so excited to have you here. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. It's such a joy to be here. Yay. You are one of the most insightful and thoughtful people I know, and I'm so thrilled our listeners will get to hear from you today. So I often say that one of the goals in parenting is to parent the child you have, not the one you were or the one that you wished for. <laughs> so let us talk about the child that you were, little Mary Schmidt, growing up in Philadelphia. <laughs> Tell me, you you are one of three, and and tell me a little bit about about your position in the family. So I was the middle child, the classic middle child, and and my sister and I. My sister's older, my brother is younger, and to this day, my sister always teases me uh, warmly about <laughs> the fact that I was named Mary Elizabeth, Mary after my mother's mother, and Elizabeth after my father's mother. And she would always, her name was Barbara Ann. She was like, who was Barbara or Ann? <laughs> you got to be named after your grandparents. <laughs> and so growing up, um, you were uh, at, at really good schools and you did really well as a student. Tell me about your, your parents' expectations for you. Were, were, were you a good student in part because of things they did? Or was it just something that you were, that drove you internally? Well, my, my parents were both devoted to education. They came from that generation that believed that if you wanted to uh, move ahead in life, if you wanted to, be, to succeed, um, if black people wanted to be liberated, they had to do it through education. So that was very much a part of their uh, fundamental value system. Um, but beyond that, um, I love school and I did really well in school very early on, but I also was a stutterer. Huh. And my and I stuttered terribly. I mean, I really had had a very serious stutter. And my mother took me to the doctors, and she said, um, "She she's always been very candid about this." She she said to the doctor, "Well, is there anything wrong with her?" I mean, you know. And he said, "No. Not only will she be fine, Mrs. Schmidt, but she's going to be special." Well, I don't know, but that that conversation with the doctor, which she would repeat all the time, <laughs> made her feel that she had a very special charge. And so if she had a special child, well, then she had to treat her very specially. <laughs> and I think it kind of reinforced, one thing reinforced the other. So um, she was especially attentive 
to my progress in school. And, and I, I repaid that because I just loved, I loved doing homework. I loved going to school. I loved everything about school. <laughs> you know, that it's funny because one might think that being, um, adorned that special crown from your parents <laughs> would cause problems with your siblings, but you and your siblings, particularly your sister worked it out really well. <laughs> so my, my, my sister and I couldn't be more different from each other. And we're about as close as two people can possibly be. She is, um, adventurous, bold. She was an entrepreneur actually in, in her life. Uh, she ran a speaker's bureau very successfully for, for many years. Um, and she would take risks. I, I was always goody two shoes, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth, you know, but I adored my sister. And when my sister enlisted me to be her ally in her adventures, I was always a willing partner. <laughs> well, you know, that means your parents did a really good job of making all the children sort of ally um, against the parents. I, I always say that when a um, when you have your first child, you know, you're all a team, the parents and the kid. And then the second right. one comes, you get the first one as management for a while so that they're not threatened. <laughs> but you know you're successful when that first child bonds to the second child more than they bond to the parents. So <laughs> kudos to your parents because the two of you got together and and, and uh, teamed up. So that's great. So you um, headed off to college. I'd love to hear the story again of your 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 decision to go to college and where, because it's a great parenting story. It's a great parenting story. So I, I went to the Philadelphia high school for girls, which was a, a public high school. Um, but you had to apply to get in, you had to have certain test scores and, and it was a, a really academically challenging high school. And everybody who went there uh, was expected to go off to college. So uh, they paid a great deal of attention to college counseling. So when I went in to be counseled, the counselor said to me, uh, gave me a list of state teachers' colleges. Um, and I said to her, well, you know, I, I really am not interested in teaching. That's, that's not, uh, and everybody in my family was a teacher, <laughs> everybody, which is why I wasn't interested. <laughs> um, so I said, I, I think I'd like to try something different. She said, nope, Mary Elizabeth, this is, I've looked at your test scores, I've looked at your grades, and this is what we think is good for you. So I went home and I told my father about this conversation and he immediately called the vice principal of the school <clears throat> and asked for an appointment. So they gave him an appointment sometime way in the summer. So he comes in and he's an attorney and he sits down. He doesn't preach. He doesn't give a speech or anything. He sits down and he says to the vice principal, I would like to see every grade that she has made every test that she has taken. And I, I'd like to go over it for every year that she's been here in high school. Um, and the vice principal took it out, looked over it. I was a straight A student. <laughs> she looks at it, goes over it. And um, he says to her, okay, now tell me, based on this evidence, where she qualified to apply for school? She said, oh, Oh, she could apply to Bryn Mawr, Swarthmore, Vassar, uh, Radcliffe, I mean, it, you know, any of those. He said, okay, that's where she's going to apply to school. And that was the end of the conversation. I, I thought he was so cool. <laughs> I just loved the whole way he conducted that. But it was quite wonderful. 
It was so great on so many fronts. I mean, he didn't bother to argue with the guidance counselor. He went to the top with the data, got the data. So parents, definitely, if you're running into issues, as opposed to getting emotional, just get to the bottom of it with the people who can make a difference. So you so you went off to Swarthmore. Yes. <laughs> and um, you married relatively young. You married while you were still in college. That's uh, right. Swarthmore was an interesting experience for me. And, and one, one of the reasons that I went is that, believe it or not, uh, 50 years ago, when I was going off to schools, most, most or many American colleges and universities were segregated. And even a place as progressive and as liberal as Swarthmore College um, had only taken one or two African Americans a year. My class was the first of 20 to come in, and that was huge for them. So, so here, was some, here was an opportunity to do something different. So I thought, oh, this is great. I, 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 I will do this. Um, at the time that I entered, uh, George and I had started dating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we knew each other in high school. I, I've known George since I was 13 and he was 15. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Oh, so cute. <laughs> so by that time we were, we were dating and, and we, uh, it was clear to us that we were going to, you know, by, I don't know, my sophomore year that we were going to get married. Mm-hmm. The war in Vietnam was raging. I mean, raging. And, and African American males were getting drafted at a, a just horrendous rate. I mean, one right after the, the other. Um, and we figured, well, you know, if we get married and he's going off to graduate school in physics, uh, all of that will kind of protect us. <laughs> but as we, even as we approached getting married, the rules, the draft rules became much more draconian. And so he applied for status as a conscientious objector, which was very rare in those days for anybody, black or white. And he, he won that status. We got married at the end of my junior year. The next month, he was drafted as a conscientious objector. Mm. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> but, but being drafted as a conscientious objector meant he had to provide public service. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And he had to do it for two years. So we decided, well, look, if you've got to do some service, let's make this interesting. So we decided to choose a place in Africa, on the continent of Africa. And uh, we uh, found a, a program uh, in Zambia. And two weeks after I graduated from Swarthmore College, we were in Kabwe, Zambia. Um, <laughs> On our way to the school, which was 40 miles from Cobway was a little town, 40 miles from that little town in the, in the middle of the bush where there was a school, uh, run by, um, a program of the United States State Department for Southern African refugees. That is for refugees who were coming from African countries that were not yet liberated. Mm. Zambia was newly liberated at the time. This was 1969. Okay. And you said your sister was the adventurous one? <laughs> was mortified. <laughs> but but off you went because yeah. they had given you the, your wings to do what you wanted to do. And when you went off to uh, post school, was you, you were pretty clear that you wanted to have five children and be a stay-at-home mom with your five children because raising five children is a full-time job. Right. So, so tell me... What happened in in Zambia that sort of changed your perspective on that? 
So, so uh, we decided, well, we're going to be in Zambia for two years. Let's get started on that family right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I had my first son. My first son was born, uh, born in Zambia in 1970, a year after we uh, arrived. And what I realized very quickly is that my mother and father were not there. My husband's mother and father were not there. My sister, no, no, none of my aunts, uncles, no. Mm-hmm. And I realized how utterly necessary family is when you begin to build your own family. Mm-hmm. And those relationships, those support systems, just everything about that. And so that really caught me short. And I, I felt as though I had no one to turn to in order to parent and, and felt somewhat overwhelmed mm-hmm. by the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only after my son was a little bit older, maybe five or six months old. And after that time, what I learned is that in Zambia and in, I would imagine most countries in, in Africa, um, there's a wonderful uh, sense that children belong to the community. Truly, the village helps raise <laughs> the child. And my students would come and knock on the door, and I'd open the door, and I said, hi, how are you? And they said, we've come for the child. <laughs> and, it was, and, and they would literally take my son out of my arms and go off with him. And they'd come back an hour later, and, and, but that was the expectation. And then when he got a little bit older and he could walk, uh, the, the, the young men would come and put him on their shoulders and walk him <laughs> down the road or take him out. Wow. So it was very much, we were, we found ourselves and we found our son very much embraced by the community once, once we had a child there. That it was, it was almost magical to see mm-hmm. that change. But that experience and, and the feeling of, of parenthood not being exactly what you'd anticipated did did uh, influence you to sort of slow down your five-child plan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, and so I imagine that there was a process to get from, here's my plan, to sort of, wait a minute, now this isn't exactly what I thought. But what was the thought process in sort of just deciding that there was you needed to have a new plan? So I, I think there was another aspect to it, and that was that um, when I was in undergraduate school, I really kind of fell in love with art history. Mm-hmm. It, it was brand new to me. I, I didn't know what a curator did or, you know, what it meant to work in a gallery or a museum. But but I I, I had been introduced to the subject um, when I was at, uh, I spent a year away from Swarthmore at, at Syracuse. And when I was there, they told me that, well, you know, if you ever decide to come back, uh, you should come into our art history graduate program. And I began to think about that as a real option and and realized that I all as much as I I loved being a parent and loved being a mother and wanted to build a family, I also loved being stimulated intellectually in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was when I when we did come back to Syracuse and George re-entered his PhD program in physics. I had the opportunity then to uh, have an assistantship and be supported for a master's degree in art history. Mm-hmm. And so that was comfortable for me. Oh, this is great. I can get a little bit of income as a teaching assistant, mm-hmm. but it's not so onerous that I can't give you know a lot of attention to 
raising my first son. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, that's, that's a, a valuable lesson to be able to pivot so early in your parenting career and, 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 and to make peace with that early because parenting involves a lot of pivoting. Yes. <laughs> so I, I want to now fast forward to your three sons. There's a, there's a bit of space in between them. And as you have said, they are very different people. They are very yes. different people. And one of the things in a previous conversation, which really struck me as being such a great parenting goal is you said that each of them got the space to be what they felt they wanted for themselves. Right. And I think every parent hearing that thinks that is the goal. <laughs> you, you want that. But but I want to kind of back up and, and talk about that a little because getting to that is is, right. is a process. <laughs> That's another thing. <laughs> so so let's start with your first son, who you've described as this incredibly bright, incredibly focused um son that Kai, you call him Kai. Yeah. So tell me when, when he was born and, and when he was little, he was really focused, you said, and self-directed. And so your next son was born and you said that that was different. So, so there, there, there are huge difference between the two of them. The, the, my oldest son, uh, almost, I, I say kind of taught himself mm-hmm. there, we, we, I almost felt as though, uh, we were <laughs> dispensable as, <laughs> as his teachers, truly. I mean, when he was three years old, he just sat in a corner and showed himself how to tie his shoes. You know, he, you know, he'd look at bike parts and go out and build a bicycle. I mean, he just, when he was in fourth grade, his teacher called me and said, I can't find anything else to teach him. <laughs> so, I mean, so, so you have that, uh, you know, and on the other hand, if I put him, you know, when we went to church and he had to recite uh, a piece of something in front of an audience, he would completely freeze. Whereas my second son, who for 10 years was an actor, <laughs> when we when we took him, he would stand up and he would leave the audience mesmerized because <laughs> he would say it completely fluently and and. And it was clear to us when he was about eight, nine, ten years old, the second son, that he was passionate about the stage and acting. And he's when he when he uh, after he graduated from undergraduate school, he said to us very definitively, "I'm going to try this out for ten years, and if it if I can't make a living from it, I'll do something else." He went to graduate school, got his MFA. Went, uh, did some film, did some theater, did, but he could, but he never was able to make a living from it. Mm-hmm. And then he went to law school. So, so, and it was, from my point of view, it not only was it perfectly fine, but I think to this day, he feels immensely satisfied mm-hmm. that he had that time in his life mm-hmm. to be an actor, to be a serious actor. Mm-hmm. So, but when he was younger, when he was born as a toddler, you realize that he was very different from his brother. Yes. And so how did you make the adjustment to a, a different child? I mean, all the things that were worked for the first one didn't necessarily work <laughs> for the second one. <laughs> I think that's the biggest learning curve as a parent. As a parent. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have a first child, that's the, that's the child. That's, you know, you figure that that's what it, it takes to, to rear a child. And I think the big surprise comes when you have your second child and you realize even their sleep patterns are different, right? As, as, as infants, um, their motor abilities are different. 
what makes them laugh, what they like, what they don't like are, are completely different. Um, so, so I think new, relatively new parents, <clears throat> you almost have to learn again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and sometimes it takes a completely different parenting style, mm-hmm. um, to, to understand what, uh, a second child versus a first child needs in order to thrive. I agree. And it would be good if parents knew that or thought about that, because I think parents feel very confused and perhaps even frustrated if the second one is not, co- they, they view it as a second one not cooperating, <laughs> when in fact, <laughs> if you kind of look at it as more of a blank slate and, and it is right. easier to bear. So uh, now I'm going to ask you this question sort of and ask you to wear both your parenting hat and your college president hat. Sometimes uh, you, Parents have difficulty if their child wants to do something that's not quite so, um, such a, the path is not quite so certain. I mean, and, and, Mm -hmm. and some children don't know as clearly as your son did what he wanted to do. So I imagine you encounter a lot of parents trying to cope with the time that it takes their college age children to find themselves. I mean, fortunately, your son sort of had the blessing from home to pursue this path that was different. But do you encounter a situation in, in your college where you have parents who are trying to influence what their children are doing or, or students who feel pressure from home to seek a specific path or at least a, a, a determined, a defined path as opposed to just exp- Explore what they could be. So, so um, let, let me let me split that question into two. Uh, mm-hmm. First, I'm going to talk about my son, then talk about how I respond um, in, to to students here at Spelman College. But but with my middle son, he he demonstrated his interest in acting. As I said, he was eight, nine, ten years old, and we put him into Harlem School of the Arts. Mm-hmm. And he had very, he had very serious instruction in theater mm-hmm. while he was there so that he could understand that if this is something that he wanted, this is what was required. Also, he asked us, he, he was in Friends Seminary, I think, as a middle school student. He asked to leave Friends and go to LaGuardia. Ah, my alma mater. Huh. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, and he went to La- LaGuardia, and if you're in drama, you have in any of the arts in, in LaGuardia, they give you a sense of what it means to be, to live in that professional world. Mm-hmm. And so we felt that if he was, if he was willing to put the time into going to, you know, Harlem School of the Arts on Saturdays, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, the seriousness of LaGuardia High School, and then doing his... That, that if he was willing to put that in, we were willing to support his effort to, to be in our. So I, I think there was a, I don't want to say a quid pro, pro quo, but certainly a, a sense that, okay, if you're serious about this, what does it mean to be serious? What does it mean to invest time and energy and effort in, in trying to realize this? Mm-hmm. And it was clear that he was willing to do that. And so that, that almost made it easy for mm-hmm. us to um, support him. When students and students often do come to me, um, in, in, I have office hours and anybody from all around the college can sign up for their 15 minutes. And very often when students come to me, they will say, you know, my parents would want me to go into engineering or to medicine or to one, usually a, a, a STEM field, but I want to be a theater major mm-hmm. or I want to be an English major. And I say to them, that 
I have great sympathy for their parents because they're giving you the advice that they feel is good advice for you to succeed in the rest of your life. I said, the advice that I will give you, I won't tell you to go from STEM to English or do any one thing. I will tell you, you have to do what gives you joy when you wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm. The thing that you want to come back to all the time, the thing you want to spend time with, the the thing that you want to um, uh, spend enough time to master, um, to to really put your heart and soul in, that's what I I would counsel you to to, uh, be involved in. And you have to talk to your parents. I always tell them that. I said, if, if this isn't working and you really feel that you want to make a change, you have to sit down with them and have that conversation with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that, that is great, great advice. So, so now your third son, who um, <laughs> it was, is, is younger than, the, there were six years between the first two, and then there's 14 years between. Now, the value of starting early <laughs> is that you can have a child... One year later, <laughs> which is what I did, <laughs> and, and still be sort of a, a young hip mom. <laughs> so your your third son, you said he had a he had a different upbringing in sense because you were in a different place with your family. Right. Um, and and tell me about how how he developed and what he determined that he would do. So so it was interesting with the first two sons. You know, first one first. Uh, we were we were students. We were actually graduate <laughs> students, and we were poor. <laughs> and and uh, so the first two grew up in, in in an environment where our resources were very very constrained. By the time we got to my third son, uh, you know, I was uh, cultural affairs commissioner. Uh, George was at the National Action Council as the president there, and then ultimately president of Cooper Union. So, so um, our lives had changed radically from being graduate students. <laughs> so his two his two older brothers always looked at him and said, "Boy, you have it easy." <laughs> um, but but, but in, in point of fact, I think the basic principles remain the same, mm-hmm. and that is to really make sure that we were open to hearing and understanding those things that he was particularly interested in. And he gave us probably the most, um, uh, the most difficult challenge of all three, because as you know, um, he, he was, he was, he turned 11 years old on September 11th, which we think had a profound impact on him. And by the time he got to ninth or 10th grade, he was t- beginning to talk to us about wanting to go to um, a military school. Uh, West Point or the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy. And then by by the end of 10th grade, he was absolutely certain he wanted to go to the Naval Academy. Absolutely certain. And we sort of brushed it off, to be quite honest. You know, George was a conscientious objector. Where's where's this military (laughs) stuff coming from? Um, But he was very serious. And he knew exactly what he had to do academically, what he had to do in terms of physical fitness, the summer programs he had to participate in. And he was willing, just like the, like my son who was an actor, he was willing to put his heart and soul in all of those. And we said, you know what? He is really serious. Mm-hmm. So we, we're going to have to support him. Mm-hmm. And I would say that over time, um, we became his biggest champion. Again, the the pivoting, which is really hard to do, but it really, really, this was sort of a double pivot. You had to pivot not only away from your expectations of what he might do, but 
but from expecting that your value system, that is the value system of a conscientious objector, would right. shape his life. So that that requires, again, you know, when we talk about things um, historically, we, you know, you say it happened and 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 it worked out well, but there was a, ch- <laughs> <laughs> I imagine there was a challenge, a real challenge in sort of getting from point A to point B. But but it's a real credit to you and George as, as parents that that you got there. What helped you change your perspective. So it was very interesting. He behaved the same way my father behaved when he challenged the counselor. <laughs> he never argued with us. He never, you know, like, oh, God, this is what you, never. He wore us down <laughs> with these incredibly logical arguments like, do you believe we should disband our entire armed forces? Well, no, of course you have to, well, what type of person do you want in leadership positions in your armed forces then? <laughs> you know? And do you know all of the things that um, the Navy does uh, in, in addition to combat? Well, let me share them with you. <laughs> I mean, and he was just so, George and I were the ones that are having the fits, right? And he's just so totally, you know, calm and, and, and persistent. He, he really was persistent. He was logical. He was rational. He had, he, and he began to do the things. His grades got better because he was kind of, yeah, you know, fine, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> his grades got, got great. He became very serious about taking his SATs and he, he really got himself into shape physically. And I said, this is in, this is serious for him. Mm-hmm. And and so um, acknowledging be, his behavior, I have to say, went a long way towards winning us over. I actually personally think a lot about the power of pivoting. And one of the, the powers of pivoting is that you keep one foot planted. I want to just talk briefly about sort of what helps keep that one foot planted in, as a parent when you have to turn a lot. I would suggest that Knowing yourself, your as a parent, like knowing your biases and acknowledging that you have dreams for your children that may not be theirs, and then knowing and respecting your child because in each instance your child, your children sort of said, "This is what I want," and let me demonstrate my ability to 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 do it, and then just focusing on keeping their best interests at heart, which it's it, you know as a parent it's so hard you you spend so much time with them and you have such dreams for them to 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 watch them go in a different direction it feels like you know better i mean what would you say to parents that feel like they know better because they're older and wiser well you know sometimes we do know better i i i just i i you know as i think about that um and uh the most difficult place where i think this comes into play is when they begin to choose their life partner Mm. you know all three of my sons are married Mm uh uh Two of them have children. The third has one on the way. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, all of them brought forth different potential partners and we had different thoughts about them. <laughs> and that, I think, is probably one of the toughest because what you realize, and I certainly realized this after my son, my first son married, and he married a wonderful woman. They've been married, you know, forever. Uh, um, so, and, and they have three grown sons themselves. Um, what, what you realize very clearly is that 
the person they're marrying is becoming a permanent part of your family. Right. And these grandchildren now are part of your family. I mm -hmm. mean, and so this is not, so, so it's, it's, it's interesting. And so sometimes you can't always emotionally pivot if you have strong feelings that maybe this isn't the right choice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. I, that I think is, has been the, for, for George and me, that may be the toughest Mm -hmm. pivot moments. So I can't let you go without asking you to reflect, um, to take a step away from your own parenting to your role as the president of Spelman. Um, and, and a conversation that we had earlier, which really has stayed with me is your thoughts about, uh, about the, the impact of social media on the way that, that students interact and on the way that black men and women interact. And what I see in social media is that, uh, and, and this, this really kind of took me by surprise, social media is a rapid response system. So um, something happens and I rapidly respond to it. And then someone else rapidly responds to me. And, some, and very often the rapid response um, foregoes the kind of thoughtfulness and reflection, reflection or even understanding the facts of a, a particular situation. And it can very often be a way of getting just an emotional feeling mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what I, what, what I, what I, what I've witnessed is that sometimes events take place and what you get is you get a, uh, a almost call and response that is deeply emotional. It's the, it's the, the first response, not the let me think about this a little bit more deeply. And so um, feelings escalate. Um, information perhaps gets misstated or misrepresented. And it can feel very disruptive to, the, to those who are participating in the exchange. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I just, that's just an aspect of, um, college life and college discourse that really was very different from when we were growing up. And so understanding, understanding that dynamic and understanding how to manage messaging and communicating within that dynamic was actually something I had to learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I would imagine that for students, um, because it, it, as you've said, it encourages a boldness that they may not have in a face to face mm -hmm. or, or telephonic talk. It, it's harder for them to even to, not only to be authentic, but even to figure out what authenticity means. Because if you exercise the muscle of rapid response and that's how you operate and you privilege speed over thoughtfulness and you get points for just having a speedy exchange. And I agree with you that that can, it's really going to impact how you interact with one another. How do you think parents should think about talking to their kids about sort of the, the impact of it? Well, you know, we, we, uh, it, it's funny you should ask that because I have that conversation. I've had that conversation with my children and, and we talk about, you know, whether or not it's good to be on Facebook, uh, how much texting we really want to engage in. And also for young people to realize that when they get to the point of entering into the uh, professional life, 
uh, competing for an internship or a job, what they put on social media is fair game mm -hmm. for an employer. Mm -hmm. So understanding that you're, you're leaving behind tracks yes. <laughs> and traces that, that somebody to under, understand that although it feels in the moment and it, it, it's enacted in the moment, the consequence for you down the line mm -hmm. can be right. Can it can, it can have consequences. So, and I think also, you know, an event happens, something terrible happens. I, for, for me, I, I need a moment to reflect on it, to, I mean, I have an immediate reaction, but I need to think about it for a moment mm -hmm. before um, I communicate on behalf of the college. I, and, and I feel that very strongly. And I know sometimes there's pressure when you're in a position like this to get a, get a communication out quickly. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there is definitely uh, a sense of responsibility to do that, but not so quickly that you haven't gotten all the facts and you weighed um, everything and, and you've given some thought to what the nature of your response is going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. That's important to remember. So I'm going to wrap it up here. But first, I want to say thank you so, so much. This has been a great conversation. Yes, thank and, you. And, but there's one more thing before we go, and that is you have to play the GCP bonus round. Okay. <laughs> so three questions. So here we go. Your favorite poem. So so uh, the, what I chose was not a poem, but it is poetry. Okay. And it's the sermon that Baby Suggs gives in Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved. She entered every in, in the warm season, she would enter into the clearing and she would give the sermon. And, and it was, oh, my people, they do not love your hands. Uh, those they only use, tie, bind, chop off and leave empty. Love your hands. Love them. Raise them up and kiss them. Touch others with them. Pat them together. Stroke them on your face because they don't love that either. You got to love it. You. Oh. And I chose that because uh, after Toni Morrison passed away, I, I, I have these president's reading circles at, at Spelman. I love them. and I love the students who are in them. And I gathered all the, the students who had been in all my reading circles from the past uh, five years together. And we just and I said, bring your favorite Toni Morrison. And we read them. And this was the this was the passage which pretty much everybody <laughs> <laughs> loved Man, and wanted oh, to read. That is it's great. Thank you so much for that. Um, okay, now your favorite two children's books, either that you grew up with or that your sons loved when they were growing up. So, so I asked my sons, uh, all three of them, uh, and, and my youngest son reminded me that we read the entire Harry Potter series together. <laughs> Oh, wow. What a mom. <laughs> and, 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 and the other two were, were Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That was my middle son. Cause he said, I used to read it chapter by chapter and he could, he was always waiting to find out what was going to happen. <laughs> and the oldest loved Snowy Day and the Gingerbread Man. Oh, so. <laughs> Snowy Day. Oh, favorite. Great. And then finally, um, the, your favorite film or TV parent? Okay. So I cheated. <laughs> so, um, I, I, my favorite parent is actually from a play. It's, it's, um, Lena Younger, uh, ah. the, the mother 
in mm-hmm. A Raisin in the Sun. I, I think Hansberry is just, I think Hansberry is amazing. Um, and I think that play is really extraordinary. And, and many people just kind of interpret her as, you know, being the strong black woman. But she's really trying to figure out her children. She's got Benita, who's this liberated, free-thinking black woman. She's got Walter, who's morose and wants to find his way in his life. And she's, re- and she's trying to keep who she is, but also do what's good for both of them. And I, I, I love that. I love that portrayal. Oh, I just love it. And I love the way Latanya Richardson Jackson portrayed it on stage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, thanks to you, I will now amend that question to include uh, <laughs> theater because that was a great answer. So thanks again, Dr. Campbell, for being with us today. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation that you'll come back for more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate and review where you find your podcast and please tell your friends. In the meantime, Please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.